Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read in just a second, starting at verse 4. As we continue our series on prayer. And so out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Ah, prayer, Lord. We need the spirit of supplication of prayer that we may confidently come into your presence often. May this sermon tonight and may this whole sermon series that we've been doing on prayer give us all a bit more zip and more pep, more support in praying often and praying regularly as children coming to a father who is ready, who is ready and able to help us. In submission to our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. So Hannah was a praying woman. You, well, Neil read for us 1 Samuel 2. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, you will remember that Hannah was a praying woman. She prayed in chapter 1. You remember the scene. She prayed for a son. Remember, it was, it was such an odd situation. She's praying. No words are coming out of her mouth. Her lips are moving. And Eli thinks she's a drunk woman, right? But she was a praying woman. And then you hear her after her son is born. She's praying. Notice that instead of worrying about everything and not praying and complaining without end, she prays. She prayed, and after the child was born, she continued to pray in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And so the Methodist preacher from the early 1900s, E.M. Bounds, I have quoted him before, E.M. Bounds, takes up Hannah as a beautiful model of prayer. Here's what E.M. Bounds said, and I hope you can hear this. Quote, Praying women whose prayers, like those of Hannah, can give to the cause of God men like Samuel do more for the church and the world than all the politicians on earth. Now he said that at the beginning of the 1900s. Let me read it again. Praying women whose prayers, like those of Hannah, can give the cause of God men like Samuel do more for the church and the world than all the politicians on earth. What a great statement. So Hannah was a praying woman. So with that encouragement, we glance here quickly at Paul's guidance in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, and we quickly see that there are different modes or different aspects or different types of prayers. There are uh, three listed here. What What are the three listed there? Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything but everything by prayer and with... Thanksgiving, right? So right there, there's three, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, right? So there's just different types of prayers, okay? Those three hit his list right up front. So tonight, we're going to walk through the different types of prayer. Not all of them. It won't be exhaustive. You might be exhausted when I get done, but it won't be exhaustive like an A to Z sermon that someone said the other day, yes. But it will be extensive, extensive enough, I hope, to give you lots to work with. 
So as we jump in, we need to state that the school, the school where we get our lessons on types of prayer is clearly the scriptures. The Shorter Catechism puts it this way, what rule is God given to direct us how we may pray? The whole word of God is of use to direct us. And then it goes on from there. But the whole of scripture. And yet, there are some special places where we gain uh, the most assistance on prayer, on types of prayer and so forth. And they are the Psalms, but also First and Second Chronicles. Most people don't realize that, but that's the point of First and Second Chronicles is prayer. So you gain a lot of encouragement and guidance in prayer in First and Second Chronicles, but also Paul's prayers in his letters, and then, of course, the Lord's Prayer. Right? So there's several places specifically. Now, if you're looking for other examples showing you ways that scriptures can guide you and how you're to pray and how we pray for uh, and, and what we pray for, they can be found in a couple of other places. I wrote a book called To You I Lift Up My Soul, and there you have tons of prayers where scripture is flowing through. Um, but there's also D.A. Carson. Oh, I didn't bring my books. D.A. Carson wrote a book called um, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. If you have a choice between my book and his book, get his book, okay? He walks through Paul's prayers, and it is rich. I mean, it is a delightful resource. A Call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson, if you're writing notes. So there's lots of places you can go that give you some guidance, okay? So tonight we're going to actually begin with Acts. And I know that's an old one, but A-C-T-S... It's a format that has a very long history, and it's a very fine tool, so why reinvent the wheel, I say? So we're going to start with Acts. And what is Acts? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And you'll notice that that's the outline for part of the sermon this evening there. So we're going to start there, and then we're going to move a little further afield from there. So we begin with adoration, A, adoration. That's how... Some of the New Testament letters begin, actually, is with adoration. They follow the Jewish Baruch Atah format of prayer. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed be the Lord our God uh, from all eternity, or something like that, right? So that's a Jewish form of prayer, and you'll notice that that comes up in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It's the way it shows up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, etc. And also Ephesians chapter uh, 1 as well. There several places in the New Testament begin with a prayer of adoration, and it follows that Jewish Baruch Atah, blessed are you, format. And what is adoration? It's that as these prayers, you look at these prayers, all of them are focusing on who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do for his people. That's how the, the adoration shows up in that format in all those letters. So let me give you a simple definition, a Mike Philibur definition. You won't find this in Merriam-Webster, okay? This is Mike Philibur. A definition of adoration. A very strong love and worship of someone. It's the verbalization of respect, the verbalization of admiration that includes even verbalizing wonder and awe. 
Long definition, but there you go. That's my definition of adoration. Now, the reality is, is adoration is hard for us. It's not what we normally do. I mean, we want to get right down to business. We want to tell God a thing or two. You know what I'm saying? We want to tell him how to fix things. We want to tell him how he's got to get right down to our troubles and our turmoils. Right now, we don't have time to spend on adoration. Adoration is really, really, really hard for most people. Can I get an amen, somebody? Hey, thank you. All right. It is difficult because we're not used to it. And so to consciously take the step to restrain our task-oriented desires and to actually spend time, just a brief amount of time, gazing on God, so to speak, is a way for us to revel in who God is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. If I were to show you another book, Richard Pratt wrote a book, I've mentioned it before, called Pray With Your Eyes Open. Richard Pratt did a really cool thing in the appendix. I wish I brought all my books in here. Anyways, and in the appendix, appendix B, what he does is he goes through and he has a list of God's attributes. I mean, it's like four pages. Here's the attribute, omniscience, all-knowing. And then here's a scripture, and he actually quotes the scripture. Then the next one, omnipresent. Then he quotes a scripture, and then another one. And it's meant for you to take one of those attributes of God and spend a day just starting your prayer talking about the omniscience of God. And then move to prayer. Thank you, Lord. You are a God who knows all things. You know if I get stuck in a nursing home and my family forgets that I'm there, you don't forget me. Nothing hides me from you, right? adoration it's a great place to go and that is a good tool if you get a chance to get that book which you should then you need to see that in one of the appendices it's beautiful and so then that's a great place for us to begin is adoration there's where we start adoration then we move beyond adoration we come to confession i love the way the westminster confession of faith puts it as it's in chapter 15 if you're writing notes Chapter 15 of the Confession is just talking about repentance, and it brings in confession. But here's what it says about repentance, but I like this. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I like that, right? And so confession is part of repentance, it's a beginning part, and so that's very fitting. There's a, there's a right place for a general confession, but when we have time and we have the space and where we're supposed to be, it's better to actually confess our particular sins particularly. Does that make sense? Okay. So confession of sin can be general and broader. We do it every Sunday morning, right? We have a confession of sin. Do you notice how broad it is? It's general enough that everybody can pray it, right? Because there's 100 and 120 people, it would take forever to confess particular sins particularly. So a broad general confession is very fitting. In fact, the Lord's Prayer actually has a general confession of sin. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So there's nothing wrong with it. I want to make sure you understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. But for our own personal times of prayer, being specific about our specific sins is fitting and it is right. I'm going to ask you to go with me very quickly to Psalm 73, okay? Just flip over to Psalm 73. I have no idea what page it's on in that blue Bible. Psalm 73 
is an example of confession of sin, of specific sins confessed specifically. There's a whole 14 sermon series I want to do on Psalm 73. I'm just joking. But I do want to preach one day on Psalm 73. It is, it is extremely important. It's a significant psalm. But notice how the psalmist begins. He begins actually with something like adoration. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But now we have a problem starting with verse 2. But, it, but for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the rest of that psalm, the first part of that psalm, he goes through and talks about how he got his vision, he got his gaze moved away from the God who is good to his people to the wealthy, who, the, the evil who seemed to be prospering and wealthy. And he became enamored with them, looking at them, and he almost lost his faith. He doesn't use that language, but that's what he's saying. He's a priest. And he comes to the point down around verse 14, 15, and 16 where he says, I came to the point, I began to say, I have washed my hands as a priest in ceremonial cleansing. I have washed my hands in vain. I mean, that's pretty close to a priest saying, I almost gave up the faith. I almost walked away from the temple and walked away from the worship of God because the wicked were prospering. So he got his... He got his his eyes in the wrong place, and it took him down the wrong path. But then the rest of the psalm, he confesses his sin. Then I entered into the sanctuary, and I saw their end, and my whole world changed. And then he says, as he gets into his specific confession of specific sins, he says, you know, I was about as stupid as a beast as I was looking at the, the wicked, right? That's specific confession of specific sins. Does that make sense? There's an example. Psalm 73 is a great example of what we're talking about here. It's really important for us in our times to spend time confessing to God specific sins specifically. There's lots of reasons for it, but, but it really has to do with your relationship. Confession is the beginning of genuine repentance. It's like godly sorrow. It's just the beginning. It's not repentance. I cannot emphasize that enough. If you want to know more, go listen to Wes's class he did for a million and a half weeks on repentance and forgiveness confession just like godly sorrow is not repentance it's just the beginning but it's really important to be specific now um, it's not that everything that needs to be done um, that, that we we confess everything all the time um, but we practice in our confession with god we actually practice what we're going to do in our personal relationships because it's a relationship with God and so we're practicing and we're growing in this habituation to learn to confess to those whom we've offended specific sins anytime you say you hear these words coming out of your mouth or you hear someone say to you forgive me of all the things that I've done wrong what they're really saying and what you're saying is I have done nothing wrong there's nothing to forgive but when you get specific, that's serious business. And it really is important. And you need to give forgiveness specifically. Okay? So let me give you two stories very quickly. The other day, we were in a new members class, and I got a little punchy with someone in a new members class. I don't remember all the details, but I felt really bad about it. And so I went to that person. Uh, it, was, it took a little bit for me to finally come to my senses, by the way. I finally realized what I had done, so I went to that person and I said, look, I, when we were in class, I did this in class, 
and did, I don't, hope I didn't offend you. And the person said, no, you didn't offend me. And I didn't take any offense. I said, that's great, but I'm going to ask you to do something because I did do wrong. I'm going to ask you to forgive me for doing that. And I was specific. And they blushed and all oh, shucks and there's nothing to forgive. And then thankfully, the person looked at me and said, and I do forgive you. Sweet. That's exactly what happens when we're confessing our sins to God. And it's training us to learn to confess our sins to one another. Okay? And so it's the same way around. You have to also give specific forgiveness. I had a guy one time, a friend, who I hadn't seen. I haven't seen him in 30 years. And out of the blue, he starts texting me. I don't know how he got my number. He starts texting me. We're talking and remembering some things. And then he starts telling me of some things he did wrong to me when I was 18. I don't remember that far back. But anyways, I didn't remember it. It didn't matter to me, but he wouldn't let it go. He kept talking about it in these texts. And finally, I got this brilliant idea. I said, are you wanting me to forgive you? Yes. I forgive you and I take no offense. He was so relieved, right? This is really important to do. And so as we confess our sins to God, it's important for us to confess Specific sins specifically, and in doing that, we're learning in this relationship, we're learning what to do in this relationship. Does that make sense? Okay, so confession of sins. By the way, Psalm 130 that we read in our responsive reading is, gives you loads of encouragement and inspiration on making a habit of confessing sins. The forgiveness and the mercy of God, he does not keep an account of our sins as we come to him. He does forgive. So let that be an encouragement to you. So adoration, confession, the next one is thanksgiving. Very good. And so, my friends, Paul gives us delightful specimens of thanksgiving. I like that. I like the way I said that. The delightful specimens. Sounds like a medical class. Anyways, so he gives us delightful specimens of thanksgiving, and it's actually thanksgiving about people. And he does it in prayer. I'm going to give you two illustrations, both of them from 1 Thessalonians. You could also go to 2 Thessalonians and see the same thing. He loved the Thessalonians. He had lots he gave thanks for for them. But here's two. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3, he says this. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, when you get to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, or verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He, in both of those situations, he's very specific about what he gives thanks for them, about them for to God. Now, that's pretty cool. Thanking God for specific traits in specific people. That's delightful. And so I would say and encourage you to set aside time to give thanks. Ladies, give thanks for your husbands and his marvelous traits. Please. Right? Husbands, give thanks for your wives and their deep faithfulness. Right? Those are good things to do. Give thanks for your kids, your adult kids, and that one good decision they made, or two maybe, or three. Give thanks for your adult kids. Give thanks for specific things. Be a thankful people. Thanksgiving should also show up 
uh, for things that God has done. This should go without saying. We should be praying, giving thanks for answered prayers. Even the prayers that God answered uh, in, in ways that were far different than the way we told him they needed to be answered. Right? We need to give thanks for those answered prayers. We need to give thanks for God's providential actions. Specifically, for example, like when God brings about things you had no ideas you needed. You need to give thanks for God's scriptures. Especially like when you're reading a passage or hearing a sermon over a passage that you have read 167 times and all of a sudden for the first time the lights come on and they're brilliant and you go, I never saw that. Give thanks for God's holy scriptures. My friends, we are supposed to be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. All the way through the New Testament, we are commanded to give thanks. You heard it in the call to worship. Did you notice in the call to worship from Colossians 3, 15 through 17? Paul says it three times in three verses. Be a thankful people. And he makes it also part of the center of our faith. For example, earlier in Colossians, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. We're to be, and the Greek word is Eucharist. Eucharisteo, I think is the official word. We're to be the Eucharistic people. By the way, that's the same term used for the Lord's Supper. We're to be the Eucharistic people. We live in a world that is anti-Eucharistic. Right? It's very humanistic. It's very much about everything else other than Thanksgiving. I mean, think about Thanksgiving's coming and how many people are going to thank God, right? It's far, few people. Christians should be the most thankful people. We're, all, we're saved and called to be a thankful people. Anyway, so Thanksgiving. And so adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and now we come to what most people think is the primary piece of prayer, and that's supplication. And so this is the S in that acronym, ACTS. Now I'm going to make this very, very short because most people think of this alone as the primary aspect of prayer, though it's actually just a part of prayer. Um, I realize there are different nuances to these words, but all of them, like supplication, petition, entreaty, invocation, and so forth, all of them generally come to the same thing. It's about asking God for specific, to do specific things, or, or to asking God for something or to do something, right? That's what prayer ends up moving into. And that's fitting and fine, and we should go there. I mean, you can't miss it in the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to talk about the Lord's Prayer briefly here in a minute. But you can't miss it. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're supposed to ask God for things. And you already know that, so I don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Okay? So there you go. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And so Acts is a good place to begin as you think of types of prayer. And all four of those topics actually do show up in some form, some heavier, some lighter, in the Lord's Prayer. All four of them do. Hallowed be thy name is just as much about adoration as it is supplication. Your name is deserving of being hallowed, of made holy in a world that doesn't hallow you. And so we pray that more people would. So that's adoration and confession. You have, um, you have confession, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You have uh, thanksgiving in the, 
in the doxology at the end, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And you have supplication that runs all the way through. The reason why I mention that, because ACTS is Bible. Okay? It's biblical. All right. Now, there are other legitimate types of prayer. There is, for example, lamentation, and the second one after that is imprecation. Both of those are forms of supplication. Lamentation and then imprecation. So let me talk about lamentation. J. Todd Billings uh, wrote a book called Rejoicing and Lament. He wrote this book as he was going through cancer treatment at 38. It was a life-threatening cancer treatment. It was uh, one of those blood diseases where they had to kill him almost. I mean, basically, they killed all of his bone marrow and then had to, he had to spend six weeks in a totally immune bubble in the hospital as they rebuilt his bone marrow. And they've told him, and he's 42 now or 44, they've told him this is going to come back and it will kill you, inevitably. And so he wrote a book as he was going through that process. He's a Christian Reformed theologian, and it's called Rejoicing and Lament. And here's what J. Todd Billings said. Quote, both the psalmist and Jesus show us that it is not irreligious. It is not irreligious to cry out in pain before God, to lament, to grieve. It is an act of faith and trust. That's a really important statement. Lamenting before God, crying out in the grief and the pain is actually an act of faith and trust. I mean, if you want Bible proof, just flip over to Lamentations. Hello, the book of Lamentations, right? Five whole chapters of tears and grief and sorrow and gut-wrenching agony and pain. And God says, that's the way to pray to me. And I'm going to prove it because I'm going to make sure it's in sacred scripture for all ages. Lamentation is a huge type of prayer that God approves of richly it's an act of faith and trust and so lamentations uh, gives us a crash course in lamenting and weeping and bearing our grieved souls to God and in those five chapters you actually have a very studied and studious lamentation let me tell you what I mean so the first four chapters are an uh, acrostic so the first chapter if you look at them they ha- it has 22 verses And so each verse begins with the next letter, basically the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. First verse is Aleph, second verse is Bet, um, the third verse is Gimel, and then it just goes on from there. And so that takes a lot of thought. If you've never tried to do asinus or anything, I'm just telling you, it takes a lot of thought, right? And so that tells you this 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 was a studied lamentation. Second chapter does the same thing. Third chapter goes even bigger. It does three verses per letter of alphabet. So verse 1 through 3, Aleph. Verse 4, 5, and 6, Bet. Verse 7, 8, and 9, Gemel. And it just goes on like that. And actually chapter 3 is the center of lamentation. And verse 33, by the way, is the center, the very center of the book. And there's a reason for that. Chapter 4 goes back to the 22 verses and going through that acrostic. And then the last chapter doesn't do the acrostic, but it stays with 22 verses, staying with the Hebrew alphabet. The point I'm trying to get across is that that lamentation, that is a very studied lamentation. He put a lot of thought into it as his heart was bleeding. Let me say it again. He put a lot of thought into it as his heart was bleeding. The weeping prophet, Jeremiah. 
So Mark Vrogop hits the nail on the head when he describes lamentation this way. His book is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I love that book. Quote, in our lament, we express the sorrow we feel, but we also rehearse, rehearse the truths we believe. We express the sorrow we feel, but we, we rehearse the truths we believe. Lamentation is you running to God and saying, God, this hurts, and I know you're a good God. I know these things about you. I know that this is who you are and what you're about. I don't understand this. This is killing me. Does that make sense? It's really an act of faith and trust. Lamentation, that's a form of supplication. Then comes the imprecations. Imprecations. Now here's a good explanatory statement on what imprecatory prayers are. It comes from a PCA pastor, a young guy named Sean McGowan in a teeny little book called Psalms That Curse. And here's how he puts it. Quote, Psalms of imprecation, calling down curses. That's what an imprecation is, calling down curses. Psalms of imprecation are either individual corporate laments, so it's a continuation of lamentations. Psalms of imprecation are either individual or corporate laments that call on our Lord to bring judgment on an enemy. Now I would add to that his statement that though the the imprecations in Scripture, for example, are very personal, they are not about personal vendettas. They're very personal, but they're not about personal vendettas. God, strike him down. He cut me off before I wanted to get off on that exit on the turnpike. That's a personal vendetta. Nope, forbidden. Okay, that's not it. But it is very personal. You're actually asking God to be the God of justice that he is. And so because the book of Psalms are the corporate hymnal of God's people, the imprecations are ultimately communal. They show up all over the book of Psalms. There's imprecations all the way through. I've given you examples in our morning prayers. Lord, if they will not repent, break their teeth in their mouth so that they can no longer devour your people. Right? That's an imprecation that comes right out of Psalm 10. Right? There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's right there in Scripture. God gave it to you to use it for those reasons. Imprecations are godly. Sometimes Christians get the wheelies when they think of imprecations. C.S. Lewis, for example, came to the point that he thought and said and wrote that the book of Psalms is not the inspired word of God because of the imprecations. Christians should never pray this way, he said. Oh, really? Well, that's funny because it shows up in the New Testament with just as much approval from God as it does in the Old Testament. And I'll give you an example in just a minute. Imprecations are important. It's where we are praying on behalf of God's glory and the good of God's people. They are prayers that are taking God seriously and longing for God's righteous judgments to be active in our time and active in our space and active in our moment and active in our season. They are so important that God made sure they were woven into the book of Psalms as well as, in the New Testament, woven into the heavenly liturgy of Revelation. Woven into the heavenly liturgy of Revelation. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. So in Revelation chapter 6, here's what we hear. Verses 9 and 10, let let me read it to you. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So he's looking in heaven and he sees this is in heaven, under the altar in heaven. They cried out 
with a loud voice. Listen to their prayer. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? That is a prayer of imprecation. Now I want you to notice the Lord's response. Notice the Lord does not respond as if he's insulted. Why? I've never heard anything like that before. How could you do that up here in heaven? Oh, right? He doesn't blush with shame that his people would dare pray such barbaristic prayers. Instead, what does he do? Verse 11, Revelation 6, 11. Then they were given, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The answer they get is, there's more to the story than even you know, but I will answer your prayer. And then when you go from Revelation 6, when you finally get to Revelation 8, the very first part, God finally answers the prayer in Revelation as he has the angels send down the vial of uh, fire that's filled with the incense of the prayers of the saints and it crashes into the earth and then comes judgment. God doesn't say, how dare you? He says, I will answer it. Imprecations are biblical and they're Christian. My friends, when people are being harmed, when Christians are being harmed in other places, if we're not praying for them, I don't know who is. When, when, when someone is being, has been harmed, sexually molested in a church, for example, and we're not praying imprecatory prayers in some sense. Dear God, this is horrible. Bring your judgment. I mean, I don't want vindictiveness. I'm just simply praying, Lord, this is evil, and I'm agreeing with you, and I'm on your side. This is evil. You should act. That's biblical and Christian. And so imprecations are extremely important for us as Christians, in our form of supplication. The last type I want to mention today is then meditations. We talked about ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. We've talked about lamentation. We've talked about imprecation. And now we get to meditation. I'm not going to take too long on this, but I'm going to give you something here. With a little attentive deliberation, it becomes clear that none of the psalms, none of the psalms are stream of consciousness thinking. None of the psalms are stream of consciousness thinking where there's some kind of sets of words that were just spoken on the spot. Psalms and lamentations are a very large body of examples of prayers that have come in with an under serious meditation. Now, don't get me wrong, Scripture does give plenty of us of examples of those who prayed in the heat of the moment and it, and it, it receives God's approval. Like in 2 Chronicles, Asa, or as we were going through the series on Nehemiah, Nehemiah was constantly praying from the hip, right? I mean, that's how he was praying most of the time. Or even our Lord on the cross. Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they're doing. Right? In the heat of the moment. So those are fine. But what you notice is that most of the written prayers in Scripture are meditation prayers. They've been, they've been, they've been, come, they've, they've been birthed through meditation. There's that other side of prayer that we need to focus on that comes through meditation. So teasing out, what is meditation then? Let me put it this way. There's all kinds of examples I wanted to give you, but 
we're getting close to time here. So meditation, teasing out a Bible verse. As you're reading your Bible in the morning, for example, teasing out a Bible verse and allowing that Bible verse to bring you into God's present presence from different angles. Thinking about your favorite verse. Let's just, even the verses we read from Philippians, right? Do not be anxious about, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and stopping and say, Lord, rejoice. I'm supposed to rejoice in you, Lord. I'm supposed to rejoice in you, but I don't feel very joyful right now. There's confession, right? And you think that verse and you actually tease with it so that it works in you, prayer, that's meditation. Okay, does that make sense? Is that a good example? Okay, all right. Or even just things in creation. Neil loves to take pictures of, of, of pretty things like trees and sunsets. Taking the moment then of just actually gazing on something in creation like sun, the sunset or the trees changing color and just soaking it in and allowing it to soak your conscious conversation with God. If nothing else, when you see colors exploding on the, in creation, just stop and just tell God, I am so amazed, Lord, you are the supreme artist. Look at the beauty of colors. And you are, this is a, a, just an emanation, as it were, of your own character. I'm amazed. That's meditation. Does that make, is that a good example? Okay, good. So meditation. Meditation is another type of prayer. So we've done adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, lamentation, imprecation, and meditation. A lot of shuns there. But we don't want to shun anybody, okay? So there's a lot of shuns. So I've given you different types of prayers, tools to aid you. Remember that, they're tools. So what do you do with a toolbox? I mean, if you, you've got to open it up on occasion to see what's in there, you know what I'm saying? Right, you've got to open it up, look in there. Oh, there's a hammer in there. Oh, I forgot that hammer was in there. You need to look in there. So I'm giving you some tools. I'm giving you a toolbox. We've got a big toolbox with lots of tools. Here's a few of the tools in the toolbox. I've given them to you for this reason, not to make you sharp as a whip. Not giving you, not laying out these tools for you to become sharp as a whip. I've given them to you, rehearsed them to you to help you in praying individually. Praying as families, praying in your care groups, praying as part of larger gatherings. Let me come at it this way. So this whole series is, if, if you're praying, a praying person, you're practicing praying already, and as you go through this series, if you are encouraged, and it helps you to feel more committed to praying, and it gives you that shot in the arm so that you say, yeah, I'm on the right path, I win. And if you're not a praying person, but you want to be, and this gets you to start thinking about it, and actually starting to, to practice some things, I win. That's the whole reason for the series, right? Either side, either way, I win. Okay, and you win. We all win. Whee! But further, I want you to remember this, that it's because of Jesus that this whole subject of prayer matters. He who is the way. We, we sang this song at the beginning of the service about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, coming from John 14. He who is the way, the truth, and the life he has cleared our access to the Father. Why? So that we can come to the Father as children who, who come to a Father who is able and ready to help us. That's great news. It goes along with this morning's sermon too, by the way. And so it's in Jesus. It's in Him because of who He is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. It's in Jesus that our impotence becomes tied tightly with God's 
omnipotence. But also, as we pray, the Spirit, we find, is interceding in us, Romans chapter 8. And the Son also is interceding for us, Romans 8 and Hebrews chapter 7. I mean, think of that for a moment. As we pray, we are surrounded by the very one to whom we are praying to. And he's the very one who's holding us and who's helping us. We have every reason to pray and be encouraged to pray. And so truly, my friends, God delights in us. He delights in us and truly he delights in us drawing near in prayer. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray because as William Cooper wrote in the 18th century, prayer makes the Christian's armor bright and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Thank God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for these tools you've handed us in this toolbox. Forgive us for not using them sometimes and Forgive us for not always realizing how much you really delight in us drawing near. I pray for all of us that we would be encouraged this day. We would be encouraged this coming week to spend time adoring you. To spend time confessing our sins, specific sins specifically. To spend time thanking you. Thanking you for our spouses, for our kids, for our neighbors, for who you are and what you have done. And to bring you our supplications, to bring you our worries and fears and cares, to bring you our lamentations, to bring you, when necessary, our imprecations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless us this coming week, that we would find you rousing our hearts to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.